I'd like for you to turn to the 33rd chapter of the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 33. I'm going to read a remarkable um, thing from the record. A, a fantastic uh, event, a story that happened to Moses. And um, I don't know if I've heard this preached too often, but it is a remarkable thing. And the Lord said to Moses, I will also, I also do this thing of which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. And you will proclaim and will proclaim, I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I'll tell you my name. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But Moses said, but God said to Moses, you cannot see my face. For no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. And it shall come about, while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The journey to the land of promise is resumed. And all that Moses has experienced up to this time has been that which um, convinced him of the uh, power of God the manna from heaven, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, um, the turning of uh, water, bringing water out of the rock, all of these things have, been, have made a profound uh, impression on Moses. The giving of the law, the instruction of the tabernacle, all of that has occurred. And now it's time to resume the journey. But Moses is ready to die where he stands than to take another step without some kind of confidence about God, who He is and what He is. Last week, we, Sunday night, we, we, we referred to that verse, verse 13, where he said, I've, in essence, I've seen your works. I want to know your ways. I know what you've done in the world, but I want to know you, and I want to know what you're like. And so I'm this man, before he moves on, he, he's wanting some kind of evidence of what God is and what He's like that he does not have. And he cries and prays this prayer, Show me your glory. That word glory is an interesting word there. It's not the usual word that's used of the doxa, the glory of God. The, the doxology comes from that word. It's the word kebod. And it means that which proceeds out of God, emanates from God. Really, it come, the word means weight. Um, and it refers to that which 
distinguishes a man and reveals a person. You've, you've used the term, well, he carries a lot of weight. You've, you've uh, used that term, I'm sure. And what you're saying is that this, there is something about this person that, um, that gives him his distinctiveness. And so Moses' prayer is, Lord, show me who you really are. And he's really praying for the outward manifestation of the inward self. And so God says, I'm going to do that. I'm going to tell you my name. And when he said that, he was saying, in essence, I'm going to let you know who I am. Now, when you come to a study of what God is like, it's impossible, of course, to exhaust what a, the theology of God, ever to exhaust the theology of God. And it's impossible, of course, to... To, to even touch the hem of that in one 30-minute uh, Bible study. But what, what is before us tonight as God unfolds His, in this self-identification, this self-manifestation, is His sovereignty. And that's what I want to talk about, the sovereignty of God and the revelation, divine revelation. Now, when he, if, you, if you look at verses 17 and 19 and 22 and 23, you'll find the phrase, I will, I will, I will. And it, it's a reference to the fact that God has chosen to do this. He can choose not to, but He cho chooses to do so. And so it reflects the sovereignty of God, the willingness of God to disclose Himself to, to us. Now what we need to do, uh, if we can uh, briefly, is to get a definition of divine sovereignty. You take these notes if you wish. I hope you will. The definition of divine sovereignty. Now there, is, there are questions that need to be answered concerning sovereignty. There are three questions. One is, who, who owns this world? That's the question that sovereignty answers. Who owns this world? And who rules our hearts is question number two. And to whom or to what does priority belong? Those questions are answered in sovereignty. Now sovereignty is the exercise of His supremacy. It means that God is the most high Lord of heaven and earth, subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. And God's sovereignty is the attribute by which He rules His entire creation. And to be sovereign, God must be all-knowing, all-powerful, and totally, absolutely free. The reasons are these. Were there even one datum however small, unknown to God, His rule would break down at that point. To be sovereign Lord, He must have all knowledge, and He does. And if God lacked, lacked one infinitesimal trifle of power, that lack would, would end His reign and undo His kingdom that there would be one stray atom of power that doesn't belong to God. Somebody else would possess it, and he would have a limited rule. And absolute freedom means that God has free to do whatever He wills to do, 
whenever He wants to do it, wherever He wants to do it. And His eternal purpose in every single detail is without interference. To be free also means that He has absolute authority. He has the right to do anything He pleases. He has the right to do all things, and He does all things right. Now, to talk about the authority of God seems kind of senseless or useless. Imagine Him having to ask permission of anyone to do anything. To whom would He go to ask permission? I mean, who is more almighty than the Almighty? It seems pretty foolish that we would even talk about his authority. At what throne would he have to be? Would he have to? Would he be bound to kneel? I mean, where is the throne that is greater than on the one on which he presides? He is absolute knowledge, absolute power. He has absolute freedom. Now there are some problems that are inherent to sovereignty. Um, I'm sure you've dealt with them. We've discussed them from this pulpit, pulpit in times past. One problem that attends to the matter of sovereignty is the presence of that which he opposes in the world, that is, evil and pain and death. Now, wouldn't it seem logical tonight if God rules the world and he is in control of everything and he exercises his supremacy and he is limited by no one, that he would have the ability and the power to prevent evil and pain and death? then why doesn't he? And that problem man has struggled with forever. I have more books in my office that deal with how to, how to resolve, how to find some reconciliation concerning the sovereignty of God and the presence of evil in the world than any other subjects. Men have debated that forever. And I suppose that there really is no answer to that question except answer. And that is that in His sovereign wisdom, God has permitted evil to exist in carefully restricted areas of His creation, a kind of fugitive whose activities are temporary and limited in scope, and beyond that we have no answers. There is a second problem, and that is the problem of the free will of man. If God is sovereign, then how can man be free? If God has absolute authority, how is it that man has the freedom to choose to reject Him? Now, the debate has raged over the years between Calvin and, uh, Calvinism and Arminianism. Uh, Calvinism says that everything is predestined and predetermined. Arminianism says that man has the freedom to choose anything he wills. Karl Barth says that grace is irresistible. And Billy Graham's uh, invitation, the hour of decision, is absolutely foolish. There is no hour of decision. Man has no right except to choose God. He has no other right. And so the, the debate between the free will of man and the sovereignty of God exist. The answer to that question, how can man be free and God's sovereign at the same time, might go something like this. In God's sovereignty, He decreed that man should be free to exercise moral choice. He's not a puppet. In God's decree from the beginning, He decreed that man have the freedom to choose and man exercised that decree by choosing between good and evil. By choosing good or evil. And when man chooses evil, 
He does not nullify the sovereign will of God, but fulfills it. Because the sovereign will of God, the decree, was not the choice what would man would choose, but that he would have the right to choose. Now, there are some things that we know are going to be true because of the sovereign God, the sovereignty of God. We know this. We know that every promise God made to the prophets He will fulfill. We know that history is moving to the time when sinners will be purged from the earth and when believers will enter into a new order of joy and when there will be established on this earth the ransomed of God and the imperfect order will be done away with. And in the process of that happening, in God's sovereign decree, man has the freedom to choose while he's on his way to that. It's kind of like this. You get up in the morning and you get on an airline or headed for New York. The, per, the, the direction of that airline has been determined. It's headed to New York and you're not going you, to change that unless you carry a gun on there, a bomb, and I strongly recommend that you don't do that. But on your way to New York, you have certain freedom to move about in that cabin of that airplane, do what you will, really. You have some freedom, limited freedom, within the cabin of that airplane, but the, but the overall movement and structure of that airplane and that purpose of that airplane is to go from Dallas, DFW, to New York City. Inside that airplane, you have a certain amount of freedom. Now, the purpose of God is going to be accomplished in this world, whether you like it or not. And on your way to the accomplishment of that, you have certain freedoms that are limited. Now there is a way in which the sovereignty of God is, is demonstrated in this text, and I want to spend the rest of the time on that. That's kind of a little heavy for Sunday night. So uh, we're going to move on to, the, to sovereignty and revelation. Now if God is sovereign and He has the right to do whatever He pleases, if He reveals Himself to us, it'll be something He, cho- he chooses to do. It'll be something He does. In Revelation. Let me, let me say that in a way that might be easier to understand. It's this. The only thing you will ever understand or know of God is that which He permits you to know about Him. Now there, is, there are certain limitations on our, of our knowledge of God concerning our knowledge of God. One is the limitation of our own lack of desire. I've said from this pulpit, and I, it's, I've thought about it some since I said it, so I need to retract a little bit, backpedal a little. I said from this pulpit, you can know all you want to know about God. Now that's kind of true, partially true. What I was trying to say is this, that the reason you don't know more of God is because you don't want to. That's what I need to say. And the limits that we have concerning our knowledge of God are to great, a great degree a limit of our own lack of desire. I mean, there's so much more of God for us to know than we want to know. And when a person tells me, oh, I wish I could know more about God, I wish I could know more of God, my simple answer to them, that's not true. You know more about God now than you want to. You can know so much more if you really wanted to. Now what happened with Moses is this, is that here is a man who started out 
at least being trained, taught by his mother in the, in the, in the basic Old Testament knowledge or, or, or teaching about uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there came a day when he saw a bush burning and, it, and his curiosity uh, just got away with him. And he went over to where that bush was burning to see if he could find out what was going on there. And God spoke to him out of that burning bush. And, and, and in this period of time, like 80 years, he, he experienced this growing knowledge of God, but it wasn't enough for him. I have a feeling that if we put all our knowledge of God together in this room, it wouldn't be half of what he had already, but it, didn't, it wasn't enough for him. He wanted to know all there was to know of God. And because our desire is so limited, our desire is so weak, our, uh, we, we have such a limited desire of knowing God, most of us don't have the slightest idea of what He is or what He's like. There's a second limitation to this revelation, and that has to do with His transcendency. Now listen to me carefully. He said, I'll let you see, but I won't let you see my face. Now, when he said, when he talked about seeing my face, he was talking about this to know him absolutely, to exhaust the depth of his being. To see his face meant, I will know everything there is to know about you. I will exhaust the depth of your being. It meant to remove the last vestige of mystery from the being of God. That's impossible. Because God's, God transcends our ability to know or understand Him completely or absolutely. And God is saying, in essence, there is no way any one of you will ever exhaust the last vestige of the mystery. There is a hiddenness about God that we deal with at our peril. Now, um, just as... God is a consuming fire to the unholy man. There is, a, there, is a, there is a limitation set between the absolute God, the absolute spirit, and the human spirit veiled in human flesh. If you went out in the, in the, in the daytime and stared at the sun, it would destroy your sight. It would destroy your vision. And a man, an unholy man, in the absolute presence of God would not be able to stand it. This is what J. Hamilton said. J. Wallace Hamilton said it. This is how he said it. He said, Just what do they want to leap out into, the, into our midst with overwhelming power to solve our problems? Step out on the stars some night and write His name in flaming letters across the sky. Quote, I am your God. Beside me there is no other. Suppose He did, He said. We'd blow a fuse. I guess we would. If suddenly God stepped out of heaven... And step down on earth, wouldn't be a one of us who would be able to stand it. The glory and the power of that, that, that sight, we'd blow a fuse. Now, to talk about this God who will not reveal Himself to in absolute ways is, is, um, should be an encouragement. It, it suggests that God is greater and bigger than any of us and any of us could ever imagine. 
And so when somebody tells me, well, I just can't understand God, I don't believe there is, I don't understand Him, I'm saying, I say, well, congratulations. That's the best thing you can say about God, that you can't understand Him. That leads me to the hiddenness of God, if you're following in your notes. There is a hiddenness about the nature of God which we need to, we need to investigate. One of the greatest things that can ever be said about God is His hiddenness. That God's hiddenness reminds us that He sets the conditions under which we can have knowledge of Him. He sets the conditions. And so Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, In the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom do not God. And what he was saying simply is this, that God felt it wise that man should not be able by his intellect to know and investigate God. His hiddenness reminds us that He sets the conditions of our knowing Him. Now, what does that mean? It means this. It means that you do not have, nor I, and I do not have, the right or the, uh, the privilege of choosing the time or the place when I will know God. Isn't that amazing? If He sets the conditions of knowing Him, see if you can stretch out the meaning of that in your mind. You know what that means? It means that God may want to teach you of His long-suffering mercy, and He might do it by bringing sorrow and tragedy into your life. He sets the conditions. And it may be tonight that if, if a person does not respond to the love and the grace of God, that He will let us know His anger and His wrath. He sets the conditions. And it may be that God wants to teach us how to, how to lean on Him and trust Him. And so He takes everything out of our life that's important to us. He sets the conditions. Don't ever forget that the hiddenness of God means that God sets the conditions for our knowing Him. Second, there is another purpose of God's hiddenness, and it's this, that He realizes we would never grow up, we would never learn fully about life if He were with us constantly. He's like a father who watches his child out the window. Some of you can remember when your kids started to school for the first time. Maybe they caught the bus, you know. I heard about a, a couple telling about that their kids, first day to school, caught the bus. And they wanted so badly to take that kid by the hand and walk him out to the edge of the sidewalk and put him on the bus. <laughs> And did the first day or two. But they said, we realized that that child would never, ever grow up and get out on his until we let him do it on his own. So he went out the door, started out to the bus. He didn't know it. We were watching out the window. And so Lowell put it like this. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadows keeping watch over His own. What he's saying is this, is that the hiddenness of God means that God is allowing us to do some things on our own. Moses, 
I'm going to put my hand over you and I'm not going to let you see me because Moses, when you get out there in the desert or you start across the Jordan into the promised land, you've got to be able to do it by faith. That leads me to the final concluded, the concluding thought of this little deal. Where can I find out about God? Now I want to, I want to refer back to that verse of Scripture because I don't want you to miss it. And I want you to take, a, if you've got a pencil, I want you to circle a word. And here is the word. Verse um, uh, 21. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. Circle the word rock. Now you talk to me, if you will, and this will be a little exercise here. Um, if, if you were going to identify someone as the rock, who would it be? I didn't hear that. Jesus, that's right. Um, Jesus said, um, Blessed are you, Simon. The flesh has not revealed this to you. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He's talking about on the, on the profession of their faith in Jesus Christ. He said, I will build my church. And wherever you look into the, in, the, in the Scripture, Jesus identifies Himself and others identify Him as the rock. And what you have here, in my opinion, is the symbols of the incarnation. For God is saying, Moses, the way you will know who I am and what I am like is by the rock. The symbols of the incarnation... But listen to me carefully. The only thing you will ever know about God will be what you know about Jesus. Jesus said, No one knows the Son except the Father. Neither knoweth the Father save the Son, or he to whomsoever the Son has revealed Him. Now what he's saying is this is that the only knowledge we have of God is the knowledge that comes through His Son, Jesus Christ. And there, in the incarnation, we discover who He is. If, you've not know, if you don't know God through Jesus Christ, you don't know God. Now, um, see if I can get this down where we can put something down here. I believe that the primary proposition for the Christian, his ultimate act of faith, is the trustworthiness of Jesus Christ. You begin with Jesus. You go from there. And the ultimate act of faith is the trustworthiness of Jesus Christ. Listen to me carefully. A Christian is a person who with all the honesty of which he is capable, becomes convinced that the fact of Jesus Christ is the most trustworthy that he knows in the entire universe of discourse. He knows one thing, and that is that Jesus Christ is who he says he is.
He believes that. That's his starting place. Now, if he has committed his life to that, and I was uh, sharing with, with uh, Mike when, we, when he came in and we were talking that last Wednesday, is that one day some, the, the scribes and the Pharisees were working on Jesus pretty heavy, and they said to him, they said, How can we know that these teachings of yours be of God or of man? And Jesus said, If any man wills to do the will of my Father, he'll know the teaching, whether they be of God or man. What he was saying is this, You make a commitment to me. You make the act, you make that ultimate act of faith to me, and then you'll know whether the teaching is true or not. You make that commitment to me, and the teaching will be verified as a result of that commitment. You don't discover the commitment, uh, discover the teaching, and logically reason it out and say, yes, I believe this. You make a commitment to me, he said, and then the teaching will be verified. So if we're committed to Him, we trust Him about the being and the character of God. What we know about God, we know through Jesus. And so we trust that what he tells us about about God is real and true. You know, if I was was going to try to develop some faith system, you know where I'd start? I'd start with Jesus. I'd start with the Gospels. And if I want to know what God is like, I'd find out what Jesus said about Him. What Jesus disclosed about Him. If I want to know about prayer, the reality of prayer, I'd read what Jesus said about prayer. And it's amazing the number of Scripture verses there are concerning prayer from the mouth of Jesus. If I want to know what the future life, life everlasting, I'd find out what Jesus said about it. So that particularly we are convinced that He was not wrong with with, with regard to the report about Himself and the report about God. I believe that I know God because I know Jesus. What is He like? He's like Jesus. Now, is there something that will help me be convinced that Jesus is right? Well, I think there are two things. Pragmatically, I think... By my own self-experimentation and my own observation, I've come to the conclusion that Jesus is true and He's real. I think two things. I think the changed lives. Changed lives. It is absolutely incontrovertible that the people who have made their commitment to Jesus Christ have been radically changed. Paul is one of Saul of Tarsus is one of them. Changed. Many of you could stand tonight and give testimony that when you came to know Jesus Christ, your life was radically changed. So that the evidence of changed lives convinces me that Jesus is real. And the second evidence, second observation you can make is with regard to social, the effects of social reform as a result of Jesus. It is absolutely incontrovertible that where Jesus has entered into the human arena, the philosophical arena, There has been social revolution. Someone said that the greatest cause of social reform in England in the uh, 18th and 19th century was not because of Karl Marx, but John Wesley. And it is incontrovertibly true that the people who have brought about social reform in this world have people who are are unashamedly evangelical Christians. So that the social change that has occurred in this world gives evidence to me that Jesus Christ is real. Now, Pascal says, either God is or He's not. And he brings up what he calls the doctrine of the argument. 
He said, put Jesus, the factor of Jesus Christ, into the scales of is God or is, is God real? Is God or is He not? And the way to tip the scales of whether there is God and whether God is real is the fact of Jesus Christ. He tips the scales. So he said, I'm going to put you over here on this rock and you're going to know me through Jesus Christ. How do I know how I get to know God? I get to know Him by getting to know Jesus. I believe if I were you, I'd get in the Gospels and I'd read them every day, young people, and I'd underline everything there is in there about God that Jesus said. One last thought. There's some characteristics about this revelation. Do you see these? Look at them. He says... Um, Verse 19, I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. You know what he's saying? He's saying when you have this, when you get this knowledge of me, you'll discover this is the primary characteristic of my life. Grace and compassion. Now, what do you think about when you think of God? Many of us think of this kind of a cyclops with a big eye. You know, I used to, when I was a kid growing up, there was this song, real, real theologically sci- uh, correct, called All Seeing Eye, Watching Over You. All Seeing Eye. I thought it was big cyclops, you know, big eye looking down. What do we think about when we think about God? We think about His. His judgment, his anger, you know, it's like a cosmic policeman is riding around so he can catch, you know, that's our idea of God. Let me tell you, the characteristic of God, if God says, let me tell you what I'm like, gracious and compassionate. Those of us here tonight know that's true. And I was walking down, I was looking around in a library the day for some new stuff. And I picked up this little old commentary that I had never looked seen before, and I turned to Exodus chapter 33 to see what it said. And it didn't have a whole lot to say, have a whole lot to say. And just before I put it down, there was this little sentence that caught my eye. When God said, I'll show you my back. And really, the, the word there in Hebrew means, I'll show you my hindsight the back side of me. When he said that, this little commentary said, when God said that, he was saying in a picturesque way, the best way that you know what I'm like is to see where I've been. I love it. Is to see where I've been. I have seen where he's been this week in the life of a young, wonderful young man. I've seen where he's been as I've listened to you give your testimonies. I've seen the change in your life, in the lives of others. I've, I've experienced that myself. I, I have seen where he's been, and everywhere he's been, I have seen grace and compassion. Let's pray together. Our Father... Take this attempt to describe you and make it make sense to those who now have listening ears for your voice. 
for your will. For I pray in Jesus' name. I made a big mistake last Sunday night. I ask your forgiveness. Came to this invita- came to the moment of invitation and didn't have one. Hence, not to have one. I know now that it really wasn't what God wanted me to do. So I'm going to give an invitation tonight. And I, I hope if you're here tonight and you were going to make a decision last week, that you'll have the same courage and the same decision to make that decision tonight. There's a decision to be made to accept Christ as your Savior tonight. What a great privilege to be able to come and know Jesus Christ and in knowing Jesus, get to know God who created you. And all that you'll discover of God, you'll you'll begin when you get to know Jesus, His Son. Seen Him, you've seen the Father, He said. Maybe you need to come tonight and recommit your life to the Lord or to, re, to, to join the church, whatever you call it, whatever it is. God tells us in our heart what He wants us to do. It's up to us to do it while we stand to sing and invite you to come.